Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Midnight Film Review. My name is Brian Stevens and with me as always is... Colin Smith. This is only the third episode as far as I'm concerned. The other two d- shouldn't exist. They're pretty, pretty BC, BC, before Colin. Oh, I love it. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and this is... What is this? In the year of our Colin? AD, <laughs> after I started to dominate the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> after after, after domination. domination. Uh-huh. Uh, I love it. You you have a very dominant personality, so it fits well. Not <laughs> not true, but thank you for accommodating me. Um, so we have an interesting episode uh, tonight. It's a little bit different than normal. Uh, we're going to have this in two sections. The first uh, section, we're going to talk about uh, comic books, graphic novels, and how they are relating to television right now. Um, could I have said that in a better way? Maybe. Just I, I would say the the recent trend of adapting comic books or adapting graphic novels to film, uh, but mostly to television. We're not going to talk about film, but uh, yeah, something something weird happened, and uh, it has been proliferated a lot. So I think that's what we're going to talk about. That that sounds a lot better than the way I said it. It's just more roundabout. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to finish it off with instead of a, a review because there was nothing that we really were dying to see this week. Um, I mean, Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse looked tantalizing, you know. Not in a good way, though. I don't <laughs> feel like that was not fifteen dollars tantalizing. Exactly, free tantalizing. Yes, but yeah. Um, so instead, we're going to give you uh, five horror films that you should see. Um, we decided to not do a top five list of favorites because it probably would have been full of films that you've already seen or are likely to see anyways. So we're trying to do something a little different, something uh, that's not normal, uh, maybe a little bit fun. Maybe you'll hear of a movie that you've never heard of and be inspired to watch it. Yeah, that's. I think that's the idea. Except half my list you've already seen anyway. And But, uh, you know, we'll... We're trying to get you out there and watch some new films, so we'll see if there's anything that sparks anybody's interest. Uh, you know, to a large portion of our listeners are six-year-old uh, housewives. Y- yes. <laughs> where, where are these six-year-old six-year-old Indian housewives? Maybe or yeah. So yeah. I, I doubt they've heard, they've watched many of the movies that we're going to talk about. Right. Well, we'll just have to wait and see, I guess. We are huge in India, though. That's yeah. that's what I've been <laughs> seeing trending. <laughs> that's our. Our core demographic is six-year-old Indian housewives. I'm just now finding this out. <laughs> Sorry to surprise you. Yeah. Spur of the moment. I'm going to have to change a lot of a lot of things about my delivery here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so how do you want to start this off? What do you, how do, what do you want to talk about? This well, was kind of your idea. You brought it up to me in an email. Yeah, I, I regret I regret it immediately. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, so I was trying to kind of trace the beginning of this trend because... Well, I mean, I mean, if we want to take it back, uh, you know, to the '90s, um, nobody would have considered producing a live-action superhero show, much less one aimed at adults or one that would have been aired at prime times um, during prime time. Superheroes were kind of toxic IP in a lot of ways, um, and one thing I do know is that Paul Dini, uh, who 
is the legendary creative force behind Batman the Animated Series, kind of brought brought comic books as far as television shows back to the mainstream. Um, so anybody who didn't grow up watching cartoons in the 90s, I don't know what's wrong with you, but uh, Batman the Animated Series was, it was like a Saturday morning cartoon, but it was incredibly dark, incredibly gothic. Um, it featured like a, a lot of characters and a lot of affectations that are just, people just take for granted about Batman right now. Um, I'm not going to remember his freaking name. Uh, so the actor, the voice actor who played Batman. Oh, yeah, I can't remember. Uh, it, it'll come to me in like three seconds. Um, I, I keep wanting <laughs> to say David Hayter and that's Solid Snake. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, he was the first voice, voice actor to use a different voice for Bruce Wayne and Batman, um, which, you know, we just assume is going to happen now. Um, but he was really the first one to do that. I, I believe before Michael Keaton. Oh, yeah, Kevin Conroy. And, yeah, Ke so Kevin Conroy has been kind of the voice of Batman in animation off and on since the show. He did uh, I th he did at least the first two um, Arkham Asylum games, I, maybe more after that. Um, so he's, you know, he's still providing a, a voice for the character now. But it... Anyway, the show was very dark, very interesting. Um, there were guns. There was, I don't know if there was blood in the uh, the show itself, but the the movie spinoffs they do. I remember Mass of the Phantasm. There was blood. So that's kind of the earliest I remember seeing superhero related shows. And then we had things like the Adventures of uh, Lois and Clark. Lois and Clark yeah. with Dean Cain. <laughs> Which was fun, you know, can't be fun. Not, but there wasn't a whole lot of Superman in that. Not really, no. Um, um, you know, real quick, I, I and I didn't know this, and you, I'm sure, you're, you're more of a comic book aficionado than I am. Harley Quinn was created by the animated series? Yeah. That's, that blew my mind, yeah. you know. She is the, I mean, right now she's as popular as any comic book villain. Sure. A, a lot of characters were, um, the way we think about them now, and Bat this is just for Batman, obviously, because we're just talking about the animated series, were um, pretty much invented by, or reinvented from unrecognizable, bland DC crap to, sorry, anybody who loves DC comics, but um, <laughs> to interesting, dynamic villains, uh, Victor Freeze being one of them. It was just sort of like a generic evil scientist mm -hmm. um, existed in comics before, but became the Victor Freeze with a frozen wife and uh, conducting experiments on himself. That was created out of the animated series. Uh, Killer Croc, Poison Ivy, uh, Harley Quinn, as you said. Um, Scarecrow. Yeah, the, the Scarecrow, um, the Mad Hatter. Um, a, a lot, pretty much everybody but the Penguin joker catwoman and the riddler yeah we have this one show to thank for them um but yeah but so anyway uh moving you know moving forward I, so the after lois and clark i don't really remember anything until i want to say smallville yeah that was i mean we might have had one-off shows that but i can't think off the top of my head it never really stuck was, around yeah, I, I really can't recall anything yeah smallville was probably the next big step 
and uh, there was I, I I'm, I'm pretty sure it came after Smallville, but Birds of Prey. Um, I'm not familiar with that. It was it, it was on for one season. It, was, it wasn't a bad show. Um, it focused on the Canary. Um, I, be, I believe Batgirl. There, there was three of them. I, I can't remember this. So obviously the show left a huge impression on me. But I just remember it was right around the same time that Smallville was on. Uh, they tried to... I think it was a Fox show. Um, it didn't last long. Like I said, only one season. Okay. But uh, I know that critics really loved it. And yeah. so did fanboys. Uh, you'll see things randomly pop up about it. Um, but yeah. Uh, so after... Smallville, there was uh, another, I would say, drought, right? I yeah, mean, a hiatus, maybe. And it seems, as far as television goes, the Arrow would be the one that became the most popular, and that's that's only on its third season. I can't, I mean, um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is season two or three? Yeah, I think either season two is over or season three is starting. I think that is it. Yeah, something Arrow, like that. season four just started, I think. Yeah. And <laughs> if I, if I could have if I had to go back in time and bet on which network was going to kind of which broadcast network was going to bring superheroes back into relevance, <laughs> the CW <laughs> is literally, literally the last place my money would have been in. Uh, Agreed. Uh, even even now, like so, I've never sat down and watched the Arrow. Or actually, I've seen some episodes of the Arrow, and it's not bad. It's it's uh. It's I'm not I'm not the target audience. I can I can say that with certainty. Mm-hmm. But it's it's kind of campy fun. It it reminds me of a worse in a lot of ways less intelligent superhero kind of Buffy knockoff, something like that. Dude, I it's funny you said that because uh I'm watching it and I'm thinking to myself um so I got completely caught up uh about a week ago all the way to this season. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, the way they've assembled this team reminds me so much of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The different big bads every year, you know, um, last year it was Ross al Ghul. Okay. And uh, I just, I, I, I definitely can see an influence from Josh Whedon, uh, Drew Goddard, that writing crew. Um and you're right, it's not great. I definitely enjoy it. Out of all the shows that are on right now, it, to me, is the most fun. Because it it cares about its characters. So, and we can lead into other shows, like, the two shows that right now that I just, I can't, for the life of me, understand <laughs> why they've gone so horribly, so horribly wrong, is... Well, one is Gotham, and you have a Batman show without Batman, so yeah. whatever. I mean, there that is just a that that is a show that somebody in marketing dreamt up and got all the way to production without anybody sort of addressing the issue of who the protagonist is going to be. It, I mean, it's we we sort of talked about this outside of the show last week. It's like uh, it's like the Phantom Phantom Menace syndrome is what we should mm-hmm. call it. I, absolutely, <laughs> and uh, the other one is Agents of Shield, which is just 
bafflingly, bafflingly bad. Like I just it when I when I think about the premise, I'm like, this show is going to be great, and it's got a great writing team behind it, you know. And it maybe it's ABC, and your hands are a little tied, but it is the writing is so bad. Well, and and both shows have sort of a framework they can follow. I mean, Gotham. If they wanted, not that this is what they have to do, but Gotham could follow the framework of kind of a serial detective show. Um, mm-hmm. That would be something to work. With. I don't know how much it's stuck to that. And well, they're trying. The, what they've see. I think this is basically where, where we can come from with, with Gotham. And they learned that the real reason people love Batman is not Batman; it's the villains, right? So they've. Basically, you have a villain of the week, is kind of what they what they're shooting for, and that works fine. It's, but at some point there you you just feel there has to be a jump in time to a a year one type story because you can only have a twelve year old Bruce Wayne for so long, or the before the show gets canceled, or, or that too, <laughs> even though the reviews are or the 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 ratings are good. Yeah, well, you know, I guess that more power to the the marketing guy that thought just throw this super popular intellectual property at the screen and <laughs> they will sticks. they will come. So, what, what were you saying about uh, Agents of Shield? Though you said you were set. well again, you you could have sort of like a ragtag one off, not quite superhero, but kind of crime fighting, you know sort of theme show where they they have big bads but they can tackle a different crisis every episode and I could see that working in a lot of ways Um, but I've never the reviews from season one were so bad that I just stayed away from it and I've heard it's gotten better in season two I just don't know if I'm willing to invest the time um, in something that I haven't heard good things about it's it's kind of hard at this point well i guess the other thing to talk about when it comes to the shows that we've mentioned so far and we're gonna uh probably step into some uh, marvel stuff here in a minute but you you your your hands are really really tied when you have 22 episodes to write because you're gonna have some stinkers and you're gonna have some clunky episodes and it's hard to tell a story that drawn out and for whatever reason well i'm guessing money but Network TV hasn't found a way to put 15 episodes of good TV out. I mean, 12 is 12 to 13 is standard, but I think we would settle for 15. But when you have to crank out those extra seven episodes, even the best show on TV is going to have bad episodes that you just have to slog through. And there's too much good content out there, whether it's superheroes or not. I'm not going to waste my time watching a show that's 45 minutes long and there's 22 of them. It's not good. Yeah, and, and so I, I feel like my first awareness of how long season runs were was just from pirating uh, anime <laughs> as like a 14-year-old. Um, and, you know, you quickly figure out that the good shows run on forever, or the, I'm sorry, the bad shows run on forever. You have, and, you know, bad is kind of a, a strong word, but you have your Inuyashas and your Dragon Ball Zs and your... Um, uh, you, you know, your serial shonen uh, anime shows that just go on ad infinitum. But the good shows will do really short, focused runs. Um, 
and each season, well, one season is 26 episodes, and each season is a focused idea. And if that focused idea is not going to be a full season, because of the work that is required to make something animated, it's going to be a half season. It's going to be 13 episodes. And they figure out the structure that's going to work to tell their story. And you know, sometimes you might have filler in there, but I don't remember ever investing time in watching something that felt like it was... Now I was just getting through it to get on to something else. I mean, except for obviously the bad stuff like Naruto or Dragon Ball Z, where <laughs> they literally are just milking the cash cow in yeah. front of your eyes. It's how can we get but, these characters on screen? Yeah. They're literally they could be talking about nothing. They they probably they probably have like scientific measurements of how many frames they can repeat in loops before the audience like gets up and walks away. Like right. the same four punches on like a, a twelve second <laughs> loop. Yeah, right. Thirteen seconds is when the audience ter- changes the channel, but they know they have twelve seconds to work with there. You know stuff like that. But. Well, that will can lead us into some good territory because we can talk about Daredevil. Yes. Which um, again, this is uh, it's so I don't think that we can strictly say that Gotham um, is bad because it's DC uh, or that. Um, Daredevil is good because it's Marvel because Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't very good and the Arrow is far superior than anything and one thing that we skipped over and I haven't watched but it's gotten really good reviews is The Flash The yeah, Flash has again, gotten another of- another CW show right yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I have not sat down to watch it um, but I've, I've heard pretty good things yeah same but the Daredevil we both have watched and yes. we both will agree that it is fabulous yes and that's a thirteen run up or thirteen run season, mm-hmm. uh, thirteen episode run season, and uh, in even that thirteen episodes, there were parts that kind of dragged on. Yeah, I, I would say I didn't feel like anything was filler, but not every, not not all episodes are created equal. You know, right. the, the pacing is not consistent, but um, overall, it was very enjoyable. Um, you know, my girlfriend and I both finished it, satisfied and looking forward to watching the next season, which yeah. is. One of the very few reasons we will be keeping our Netflix subscription active a little bit longer. So, and you know, it had one of the one of the best fight scenes I've seen in really film or TV this year. Um, which you could say it was kind of a ripoff of maybe an old boy fight scene where the, the camera stays fixated in one spot and follows it kind of like a, a video game. But that fight scene, I mean, you, it's one long take. I'm assuming they may have pulled some trickery there, mm-hmm. but that had to be exhausting to shoot, and it was exhausting to watch. Yeah. Uh, by the time that fight's over, you're you're like, wow, and it was so cinematic and so realistic. You felt the the bones crunching. You felt the the walls breaking. Like at, again, one of the best shot scenes, fight scenes that you'll see. Well, one yeah, and from a somebody who kind of is, you know been in love with martial arts for a long time um one of the things i saw the the producers and the choreographers um do in conjunction with the director and the director of photography whoever's behind the camera is they experiment um they experiment with choreography throughout the show um you see uh one of the the first episodes um where he confronts the attacker um trying to assassinate his soon-to-be secretary, um, there is a heavily Filipino martial arts armed combat scene. Um, there's 
there's lots of capoeira, there's lots of um, wushu influences, um, but then it also gets gritty, um, you know, fun grappling, uh, clinch work, stuff like that. So they, they really did, did a good job of making the fight scenes fun, but also, and, and credit to the actor who played Maddie, um, whose name I don't know off the top of my head here, he really made, made me feel like he was fighting. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't look like he just stepped out of the shower and was fresh after every fight scene. Um, and the producers, the producers made me believe that this guy was going, going through a physical ordeal being in combat. He looked bruised, tired, broken, um, hurt, um, which is something I don't, I don't really think I've ever seen in a, a superhero show before. Right. And I really appreciated it. It added a lot of humanity to the character, which is was welcome. Um, one of the really good things about the show. Um, so we'll lead into now. We can talk a little bit about uh, what I would, what I kind of pitched to you originally in a way. But so shows that are coming out. Um, you know, uh, we can start with Netflix because that's where we were talking with Daredevil. They're kind of expanding that world with Jessica Jones mm-hmm. and Luke Cage, um, and possibly the Punisher. And yeah, which we we just read rumors about like a minute before doing this podcast could be replacing Iron Fist, who trained Luke Cage uh, or was Luke Luke Cage's mentor partner, and part of the, you know, that sort of New York Hell's Kitchen scene with the Punisher, who is also part of that same kind of geographical area and Marvel lore, I guess you could say. I think the Punisher is interesting because, uh, you know, the Punisher realistically probably wouldn't work on network television, um, but on Netflix, and they've shown they don't care. They're going to do whatever they want. I mean, the Daredevil is very R-rated in a way with its violence and its Mm -hmm. gore and um, some of its sexuality, no nudity, but definitely sexualized um the punisher is much more violent much more brutal um i'm not as familiar with jessica jones or luke cage but from the trailer it looks like it's going to be just as brutal yeah the the cinematography looked very similar to what we were seeing with daredevil um based on the trailer and isn't it interesting if you just for uh, just think of what um Whedon has done with the Avengers and the cinematography that goes into those films. And they've all been different um, when it comes to Captain America versus like Thor. You know, Thor is a little bit darker because of where it takes place and Captain America. But it's the Netflix series are dark. Yeah. I mean, everything is really brooding. The the reds are more vibrant. The the blacks are blacker. Um, There's shadows. Uh, I, I definitely like the contrast of the two worlds. Sure, and and credit to you know credit to Netflix and Marvel and the producers for making Hell's Kitchen a character with you know a distinct visual style and feel. Um, it yeah, I think it it worked for the show and you know the the characters needed to have a big emotional investment in this place and it needed to feel like. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like a city that was dying, yeah. dying around them, and I, th- I think it did. Um, so, one thing that we, we we initially talked about talking, talking about talking, talking, talk talked about and, talking about talking about talking, and we're going to talk about uh, is graphic novels, which 
uh, I can't think of a single graphic novel that was turned into a television series before The Walking Dead. There, I, I'm sure there have been, but really it, they seem to get adapted to movies a lot more frequently than TV shows. Um, yeah, I, off the top of my head, I don't know anything that predates The Walking Dead, so we'll and go with that. And it looks like we have a literal crap ton um, that is an official U.S. measurement of yes. weight. One, me- I, I prefer the, the metric fuck ton okay, rather yes. than the United States. Crap ton? Yeah. Uh, the, the king's crap ton. Uh, <laughs> well, however you want to say it, we have a lot of these graphic novels that are being turned into TV shows over the next few years. Yeah, and not, you know, so the, I'll, I'll let Brian read the list because this is absolutely ridiculous, and obviously not all of these will make it out of hypothet- hypothetical pre-production stages, but yeah, go, go ahead, because this is crazy. Um, so I'll start off by just saying these are the ones that we know for sure that are going to be made. At least there's trailers for them or they're in post-production um, and this isn't even all of them. This is just ones that I kind of wanted to, to chat about um, or that I thought sounded interesting. Um, Why the Last Man, um, which I, I, to be honest, I haven't read any of these or yeah. most of these. Um, so anything that I know about them is secondhand or that I've read. Um, so Why the, La- the Last Man is uh, headed to pre-production right now. Uh, the Preacher, which the trailer just al- aired... Um, this past weekend after The Walking Dead is set to go early 2016 Um, uh, interesting side note on that Um, created and produced by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg so that that is very interesting I'm guessing that means they're big fans of the the comic series Uh, graphic novel Um, another one that is for sure to be released is Outcast which, again, I never heard of. I saw the trailer. Um, looks interesting. That's going to be on Cinemax, which makes it even more interesting because Cinemax is crazy and they will do crazy stuff. Global Frequency. I've not heard of that one either, and it's being put into pre-production. Um, Lucifer, which looks really interesting, um, and that's actually going to network TV on Fox. Um, surprising. Um, we have Legion. Never heard of it. Uh, I'm, might be the same graphic novel that the bad. Isn't that the the bad movie with? Uh, oh, with uh, Paul Bettany. Yeah, Paul Bettany. Possibly. Yeah. Um, Dread Star. Yep. Don't know that. It's one. by Jim Starlin, the uh, the same guy who did uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, interesting. Sure. Uh, I have no idea. Um, Amped which is uh, by the same people who do Why the Last Man and The Preacher. And the list goes on. There is an interesting... So Dark Horse Comics, um, there's a number of their titles that are going to be put into production eventually because they signed a huge developmental deal with NBC. I don't know what that means. (laughs) It means we're going to have a lot of really, really sad, lackluster adaptations of some really adult DC DC intellectual property. So if you are a fan of Dark Horse, um, I guess we should just apologize now for NBC's uh, future release. So there's about uh, 25 to 30 um, scheduled or already produced uh, shows that are going to be hitting the air. 
um, based on graphic novels. Um, it seems daunting. It seems um, almost a little foolish. We know not all these are going to be good shows. Um, there's also a play from Sci-Fi Channel to purchase a bunch of graphic novels and turn them into miniseries. <laughs> so I... Fingers crossed that your your favorite graphic novel doesn't end up on that list. So at <laughs> NBC, Sci-Fi Channel, I mean, there's a ton of these networks getting into this graphic novel. Um, and it's mostly because of the Walking Dead success. Yeah. Which is not a good show. I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to crap on it and say that it's the worst show ever made. It's addicting because you want to see what happens every week, but and this is we're probably going to lose most of our audience for saying this, but I, it's the characters are not good. They're not well developed. And um until the last couple of seasons, they didn't even kill that many zombies. Yeah. Um but the Fear of the Walking Dead is something that didn't even exist and now it does and that has 10 million viewers so AMC's on a roll yeah well and to be to be fair um, I've never sat down and read the graphic novels but my understanding is that they starting even after the first season of the show they deviate um, to the point where they're not even really comparable anymore as Uh, far as uh, characters who's alive who plays what role um yeah so they definitely did the trick where they meshed characters because they had to yeah but you know um the, the first few seasons are pretty i've read the, those that's one graphic novel i have read okay um or i've i have been reading i'm not um 100 caught up um the graphic novel is a lot better yeah um it's more interesting and like there's just subtle things and and that I don't feel like the TV show had the balls to do you know Um, for instance I don't want to get off on a tangent here but to me this is important you know Carl as a child in the book shoots and kills Shane in the show he shoots and kills Shane but after Shane becomes a zombie yeah that's just a little thing that's like why, why do you... You just don't have the balls to do it. Yeah. Deal with deal with a kid becoming a killer, you know? Just stu- that, that kind of stuff makes the show just not pop for me. It just makes it mediocre. Um, so... Yeah, and the fact that it's one of the shows where they have to build build the intensity and leave you on a cliffhanger before every single commercial break. That too. It's, yeah, it's got to be exhausting to watch. And it is. Yeah. A lot of times it is. Um, the the other graphic novel though that um, I want to talk about is Preacher because do you know a lot about Preacher? I don't. Um, but when I seen you write it up, you were like, "Oh, that seems dark." Yeah, and I was I was trying to refresh my memory because any reading or knowledge I'd done of Preacher, um, it's it's been probably since I was a lot younger. Um, but I like. So, and just just looking at a synopsis, uh, it's about a preacher who is bonded with this being that is neither good nor evil and of both heaven and hell. Um, But the the story kind of begins with him killing his entire congregation and destroying his church. Um, And then going on this sort of... uh, 
gonzo search physical like literal search for god like he travels the country trying to figure out what happened to god because god has fled heaven uh god fled heaven after genesis after the creation um and he confronts all these interesting people and supernatural entities along the way um so i just looking at the trailer like it it was like punisher father punisher like he is going to travel from town to town punishing sinners is it like a post-apocalyptic like, world no, no no it's it's like a modern day world um and again i you know i apologize if i'm totally wrong please leave a comment and tell me how wrong i am um i will gladly eat crow on the next show for you <laughs> yeah but uh, yeah, I just I feel, I feel like it's it's much bigger than the trailer we saw, and it's just a trailer, and you know who knows what the final product will be like. But I don't know how they're going to adapt it, or if they do, what parts are going to remain intact, and where they're going to to take the. Well, one of the things I initially read that was skeptical about the preacher was they is how controversial the book is so the graphic novel it is very you know there's a lot of I'm trying to think of the right way to put this it's going to upset religious it's going to upset non-religious yes. it's yeah. going to upset pretty much everyone <laughs> in a way that not in the same way but in a way that South Park you know comments on things the preacher does in a more graphic violent way is the way is what from what i've read preacher was the graphic novel or the comic that when i was a kid and reading x-men that i was i was not supposed to be reading preacher and i wanted to and did anyway um definitely again like i too adult for amc i will say um HBO, maybe HBO could do it justice, right? But it just it seems so ambitious that I don't see what there is to be gained by trying to adapt. I mean, other than money, you know, sure, pure commercial value, you can make some money off this by shocking us or right bring the fanboys out for the first three episodes or something before they start throwing mud on it or something. I I just I just don't know why. Uh, (laughs) Back. uh, we we have to come up with a name for this, like Robo Robocop syndrome. Robocop syndrome. There you go. Yeah. Uh, um. So the other one that interested me, and it was just basically because I saw a trailer for it, is Lucifer. Okay, and I'm I'm not really familiar with Lucifer, so. Um. Well, I'm not familiar with it at all either. Well, but, sweet. Well, we're gonna talk about it. All right. And we're gonna pretend to sound knowledgeable. Uh. But just from the trailer, um, it looks like an interesting premise. So the way that the trailer shows it in the synopsis on IMDb, is Satan, Lucifer, has decided to leave hell. And he's decided that uh, he's going to be kind of good and not all evil. And um, in an interesting way, the main... So it takes a unique mythological turn on... you know, on the way heaven and hell works, but and we'll I, be talking about why this isn't a stretch in our theology podcast. Which yes, is the, the follow up. <laughs> Stay tuned for that next week. <laughs> but sorry, but basically, so he leaves hell, and 
because of course Lucifer is in charge of hell and the demons and so now the demons are running amok and God is upset yeah so he sends um, an unnamed angel in the trailer which I'm guessing it's Gabriel or Michael those are the only two angels named in the Bible so I'm guessing to try to get him back in line yeah he ends up uh, teaming with a uh, human detective to help make the world a better place but in turn causes people to sin and basically tempts them into sin but uses that sin to give him information so but it's very vague on the plot line and it seems like it's going to be thick with humor okay uh, and sexual innuendo innuendo um I don't know it doesn't look that bad but it is on Fox and there's only so much you can do with a premise like this again I don't know why any NBC or Fox would create a graphic novel. No. Clearly, Rupert Murdoch has not heard about this yet because he's going to have something to say. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I think that um, it may work, but, you know, they, they've already they tried Constantine, which isn't it, that, that's a comic book, but it's more along the lines of a graphic novel in the way that it the things that it deals with. It's dark. That didn't work, and this feels a lot, a lot like that, honestly. Except, I mean, if you don't cast Bon Jovi as Constantine, then you've just you've already failed. You're doomed yourself to fail. <laughs> so, bon Jovi. Tr- uh, fun, fun fact. That's what the the look of the character was actually designed after. Of Bon Jovi. He was, wow. He's drawn as Bon Jovi. I mean, he rides a steel horse, doesn't he? Pro- I mean, probably. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't, know I don't know if that's true at all. Yeah. Um, so is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Any other... No, I, I mean... Or <clears throat> just, I, we're at this crazy inundation of comic book ad- adaptations. Uh, and, yeah, one thing we didn't even talk about is Supergirl. Oh, yeah. Um, doesn't really seem worth talking about from what we can tell. <laughs> <laughs> neither of us neither of us were masochistic enough to watch it. I'd say it, you know, it has an average score on... We check Metacritic. Um, fun fact: I think the uh, the Crimson Peak Metacritic has dropped below, or maybe it was the Rotten Tomatoes. The Fresh Meter has dropped below seventy percent. Oh, really? So, yeah. Well, time will tell for Supergirl. Is what I'm saying. But uh, I'll be glad to catch up if it's good. Yeah. I don't mind catching up. It, and it could be just a slow start, but it, it looks like people people are feeling like it's pretty average right now. So that's. That's kind of where we're at. And like we said, there's there's no time for average television when there's so much good uh, media to be consumed. Yeah. So uh, I'll gladly watch... I, w- I would rather watch Daredevil again than watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or Bad <laughs> Supergirl. You know what I mean? Like, I'm yeah. just not going to waste my time on something. And that's the other thing, too, is Supergirl's going to be 22 episodes. Yeah. Anybody got time for that? Yeah. I got video games to play, okay? Come on, guys. Let's make like some good good TV. This side note, and if Amanda, if you listen to this, Sam's Club PlayStation Four <laughs> on sale next week, three hundred bucks. I'm just saying. Yeah, time to get a Sam's Club membership. There you go. S- or sell your Xbox. <laughs> I just buy, just have both, right? Yeah. What do I know? Yeah. Uh, all right, so hold on to us after the jump. <laughs> Let me try this again. That's going to be edited out. Yeah. (laughs) 
Uh, we'll be right back uh, in just a second with our top five horror movies you should see. Stops and plaques, singles ass, they run you hot cold like a real star, and a thermostat, so you're about on a top, hope it won't hurt you bad. All right, welcome back, Colin. Uh, so we're going to read off, um, well, I'm going to read off my top five list. Uh, because I love arbitrary lists. I love making lists. Um, if I see a list, I click on it on Facebook. If I see a, an ad for a list, I click on it. I don't care what it is. Top five, top five frogs, top species. I'll click on it. Top fifteen boner scenes of. of I'll click on it. Yeah. I'll click on it. Boner jams fifteen. Yeah. Um, and Colin um, does not believe in lists. I'm going to arbitrarily select movies from a pool. And and describe them to you. <laughs> that sounds fun. It sounds like a bloody pool, though. Because these are horror films, right? We're doing horror films. It's a curdled bloody pool, yes. Um, so, real quick, to set the stage, because we should when we start naming these off and you're kind of like... Yeah, he, he said horror and there were air quotes around the word horror. And I'm doing them with my finger right now. He really you is. You can't see it, but Promise. I really am doing it. Yeah. Um, so, for a lot of people, horror is a lot of different things. Um, there, I... You know, if you look for top five horror lists, some people have Signs of the Lambs on there. Yeah. Um, some people will have, you know, certain David Lynch films on theirs. You know, it just depends. Horror is a very relative uh, thing. That was very subtle of you. Yeah. Uh, Alien. Aliens were yeah. two I saw on a couple couple horror lists. Yeah. Um, so. And I don't consider those, uh, those movies don't really scare me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, Aliens, I was kind of... Aliens kind of drifts more towards sci-fi. Alien, there there's some strong psychological horror elements there. For sure. I would still probably call it a sci-fi movie, but there's a case to be made for films to transcend one simple genre label. And those are sometimes the best films, right? Indeed. Uh, one other thing, one other caveat to this, that it was a kind of a curveball I threw at Colin, and uh, he had to uh, delete his entire list. Because I never watch movies that are not just, you know, like the top grossing films of all time. All time. Uh, uh, he had four, all four Transformers yes, on his <laughs> on his horror movie list. That, uh, actually, if we can go back, I would like to add pretty much every Michael Bay movie <laughs> ever made. To... It is a hor- horrific experience setting through Transformers 4. Oh, no. Like... You know, if we were doing ironic horror, it would still be the Dungeons & Dragons film adaptation. Oh, which, yes. to this day is the worst movie I've ever seen. And I've seen Kung Fu. I made I made Brian watch <laughs> some clips from my favorite bad Kung Fu movie of all time. Still not as bad as the Dun- Dungeons & Dragons film. Um, well, you've obviously never seen X vs. Sever Ballistic, Ballistic. I have. I've seen X vs. Sever. And that Sever. wasn't the worst movie you've ever oh, seen? Oh, the Dungeons & Dragons film makes that look like <laughs> cinema couture. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I have not seen the Dungeons & Dragons film. Yeah. Probably won't now. Um, but the other caveat that we're getting around to is uh, we took out some of the popular films like Halloween, Psycho, The Shining, uh, Scream, just movies that we know you've seen, movies that are on the top of every list, The Exorcist. Am I missing anything? No, I think I think The Shining and The Exorcists. Pol- I, I didn't include Poltergeist because that's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it would have made my list anyway, but it was it was in the running. Let me say that. Definitely, uh, you know those, those are classic horror films that we Texas Chainsaw Massacre, another one that I had on my list originally, but I took off just because everybody's seen it or everybody at least knows about it. Um, if you, especially if you're a horror aficionado, 
So what we've compiled, really, is a list of five movies that we think that you should see um, or give a second chance to, possibly. Maybe you have seen it and you're like, I didn't really care for that. Um, So I'm going to start us off. And um, this movie is probably the scariest movie I've ever seen. And I know that's saying a lot, but it really had more to do with the situation going around this film. Um, first, let me tell you the story. So I watched this film, and uh, I, it was a late night. It was probably 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning when it finished. And at that time, my wife um, was working day shift as a nurse. And she would call me. Um, we were living in separate cities. She would call me on her way to work. And she calls me, and she says, I had the worst nightmare I've ever had. And I'm like, okay, tell me about it. And she, I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to ruin the plot of the movie. She proceeds to tell me the plot to The House of the Devil, which she has never seen and I just finished watching. The exact plot was in her dream. So as I'm watching this two hours away, she is dreaming pretty much the same plot that's happening to her. It not, needless to say, it scared the shit out of me. Uh, and I haven't watched it since. But, um, so number five on my list Wait, I'd, I'd like to say, interrupting you horribly, the next time you go back and watch it, it'll be a completely different movie. That, that'll be the, the, the final twist. <laughs> the final twist. <laughs> Nothing like what you remembered. It'll just be, and you'll never figure out what, what really happened. What that really night. happened that night? Uh-huh. Uh, the House Wait, of the sorry. Devil. So, uh, it's a uh, Ty West film. Um, probably the only name that anybody's going to recognize is Tom Noonan, who is a character actor. Um, first really popular for Manhunter, Michael Mann's movie in the mid-80s, which was the first time we ever saw Hannibal Lecter before Anthony Hopkins. Um, he played um, the Red Dragon in that film, but um, he plays uh, Mr. Ullman, who puts an ad in the newspaper for a babysitter, and it just so happens on this night that there... It's, by the way, this is a period film. It was made in 2009, but it's set in 1983. Um, and... Uh, Samantha Hughes is the main character. She goes to babysit, and she finds out that she's not babysitting a child, but an elderly old woman. And there's also a lunar eclipse that night. Um, so she's in the house of the devil, and there's a lunar eclipse, and some creepy stuff happens. But what I like most about this film is the atmosphere that it builds. Um, it definitely feels like an 80s film. If, if you saw this film, it's on Netflix... If you just stumbled on it and watched it, you wouldn't realize that it was made in 2009. Funny funny fact, I feel like the 80s is a popular time for setting these films well, because it was before the advent of cell phones. Yes. Which is the last time it was possible to be actually alone in America. <laughs> and that is yeah. 100% true. This film definitely could not take place uh, today. It couldn't, it couldn't be set today. But... Um, Ty West, um, I I moved this film on uh, over another one of his films called The Innkeepers. I really love his uh, horror sensibility. Um, there are a few people who don't like him. Uh, he can seem sometimes to be rigid, and um, his pacing is very long and drawn out, um, kind of similar to uh, It Follows and some of the long artistic shots that kind of can cut the tension. But what The House of the Devil does is it builds tension very well. Very similar to a Rosemary's Baby, where you are waiting and anticipating that final reveal, uh, and then when it happens, it pays off. 
but part of the scare is building to the actual scare. Um, so that's mine. House of the Devil. Check it out on Netflix. Made in 2009. Okay. Well, I'm going to start mine with, again, this probably should not be on the list, but um, one of my favorite horror movies of all time, and it's not totally a horror movie, although it is more so than the kind of the films that followed it. The original Evil Dead um, from 1981, directed by Sam Raimi, who is now legendary. Um, you know, I'm not really sure the background of this film, if it was just incredibly low budget or if it was like a student student film project that got funding or what the deal was, but very clearly there's no money behind this film. And it is still brilliant horror filmmaking with a little twist of comedy thrown in. Go, so going back and making this list, I didn't realize that the original rating for The Evil Dead is NC-17. I you, didn't either. Do you know why? Immediately I knew why after hearing that. Um, is it because of the tree raping? Yes. This Yeah, there, <laughs> there's a scene in this film where you get to see what it would look like if a tree raped a woman. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is not like, you know, it's... <laughs> As they said in Always Sunny, there's no full penetration. But it is you very clearly understand what's happening, and it's very disturbing. But beyond that, this film is, is like a landmark in horror. Um, Sam Raimi did some, some things with camera work that never, never were seen before this film. The most noticeable is uh, he does this low-to-the-ground, fast-moving shot through the woods a couple times in the film creepy um and it is super creepy and it is much emulated in horror films but also uh, just in in cinema in general today um and here this young director has this vision for the shot and he figured out how to do it and it turns out it was with two people a lot of practice and a two by four <laughs> is what it really took to <laughs> To create this really cool visual effect, but there there are just some really fun stylistic things here. So there's that shot. There are these kind of um, these quick cuts of things being assembled, which went on to be kind of a, there's an element of humor there. Went on to be one of his trademarks mm-hmm. in the series after that. Um, you know, you so you you know this from like Evil Dead Two with Ash getting his chainsaw arm ready uh, in the tool shed, um, stuff like that. But there are some really cool horror uh, elements here, um, which probably e- existed in exorcism films maybe before this, but all came together uh, in this film, where one person is infected, and they are there's a, a group of people trapped in this cabin, and they're they're kind of trying to keep evil from getting in the cabin with them, but they're also trapped in the cabin with evil. Um, so I, I don't know if I want to, if I want to spoil too many more things. Um, but if you haven't seen this, I don't know what you're waiting for. Go out and see the original evil dead. It is campy fun with just the right amount of real scares and real creepy tension. Um, that a lot of which come down to just a good understanding of what makes horror scary and um, good production because the entire film is shot in this tiny cabin and 
the woods surrounding this cabin. So, and I'm glad you chose Evil Dead, not Evil Dead Two, because I think a lot of people would have chose Evil Dead Two, because it's a little bit more polished. He got a little bit more money to go back yeah. and remake. Re- re- remake the remake his original film, which is pretty cool, and that doesn't really happen that often. But and, but it, it I, that movie, the first one, ha- just has such a charm to it. I think because of how good it was made with such poor tools yeah if that makes sense it, it does just, yeah it, and uh it all it will always have a special place in my heart um so number four on my list into the mouth of madness um no like i said john carpenter film uh what i really like about it uh is you don't know really what's going on for most of this film uh, so the IMDb synopsis says an insurance investigator begins discovering that the impact a horror writer's books have on his fans is more than inspirational. So uh, what happens is Sam Neill is an investigator. Um, he gets hired by a publishing house headed by Charles Heston. <clears throat> Charles Heston. Yeah. Um, and they ask him to go find this author and, uh, he goes to this fictional town to find this author, and what he finds is pretty much madness. So the way that the story unfolds is that when you read this book, uh, you go insane. And it's it's not necessarily a great story, and you can definitely see the riffs of uh, Stephen King-ish of, of the film like they're going for a Stephen King vibe but really what I like about it is you don't you never feel that your main character is one safe or that he is completely all sane um, and there's reasons for that I don't want to give anything away whatsoever because it is an extraordinarily twisted film um, there is a scene early on in the in the movie um, that I, I like to talk about because it is so creepy before you even have a hint of the madness that's going on. Uh, Sam Neill's character is talking to another character, and a guy holding the aforementioned book approaches them as they're eating, and um, in a classic New York-style restaurant, uh, it's all glass, and you can see in, and they can see out, and he just stops and just stares into the restaurant before he proceeds to just start pounding on the glass until it breaks and it's that kind of creepiness that this movie um, oozes. Like, uh-huh. there is a scene where they go to a hotel, which it kind of reminds you a little bit of The Shining, um, yeah. just because of the setup. It's a creepy hotel. Um, but he goes there, and weird stuff starts happening. And But it's not necessarily the hotel. It's not necessarily even the town, as much as it is this book and his descent into madness. Um, and every time he picks up the book, that's the other thing is, as a as a reader, you or as a watcher, you know, don't read that book. Like, you just want to be like, stop reading the book. But it is so addictive. And there's obviously some commentary on uh, drug addiction or alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, like any great horror movie or any um, allegorical tell, it, it has um, poignant moments in it that you can apply to real life. Um, and Sam Neill's great. Uh, this is... Um, before um you know Jurassic Park days but um definitely perfect character for this for this movie so Into the Mouth of Madness number four okay well I guess it's my turn then um let's see 
I'm not doing any particular list. Um, let's go ahead and talk about saw. Um, most people think about the string of like 2,000 sequels um, <laughs> that really just became kind of bad torture porn. I mean, I think I saw Saw 2 and was kind of like, why did I even go see this in theaters at the time? And Saw 3, I maybe saw part of at somebody's house. And do you know, I don't I don't really know how far they got... Um, I think there's five films. Uh, no, there's at least seven, I think. Oh, is there? Yeah. Here, I'll let, I'll let you figure it out. Um, yeah. But uh, directed by James Wan, and I, I believe uh, he was an Australian director, kind of an aspiring Australian director, and he thought that this was his big break, this story and this film. Um, and could not find any any money in Australia and kind of got a small amount of production money to come to America and made this dirt cheap film uh, which was very profitable profitable um, but more than that it uh, it it played on some interesting fears um, one of waking up, uh, somewhere you're not um, being trapped in a room um, with a stranger um, but I, I think I think what I like about what I like in horror is something that is fundamentally scary and well executed and that's really what Saw comes down to um, there is a really fun twist in the film um, but most of the horror comes from these two characters trapped in this room trying to figure out their relationship to one another, whether they can trust one another, and what lengths they're willing to go to to escape from captivity. Um, it's, there are gross moments, um, but it's not a, I would not call it a torture film necessarily. Um, it's not especially by the standards of like the Evil Dead remake I watched last night this would be like a Care Bears, Care Bears film yeah. I mean <laughs> there, there are a couple gross things that happen but the film is genuinely interesting and genuinely creepy um, at different points uh, and the production's not you know for the amount of money they had it's, it's good but it really shines with, I think, the jigsaw doll um, that kind of is a stand-in for the, the mysterious villain or abductor that you don't really see. Um, very well designed, very creepy. And the masks in the film. Um, there, are, there are a couple well-done masks. Uh, Really, I, I don't think uh, as far as like cinematography goes, there's or direction goes, there's anything particularly amazing here. There, there's a really fun scene with a, a camera flash um, that is high tension. But uh, other than that, this is just a an interesting, creepy film um, that everybody should see. And I have no idea how it became. 
a multi-million dollar franchise spewing machine based on based on the original Saw. So, uh, yeah. Seven. Seven movies, you were correct. God, that is... I, and, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, that... We're not even in seven Paranormal Activity movies yet, are we? No, I think that five is, a, is the last is one, actually. dynasty right there. It really is. Yeah. And I... See, but... I'll disagree with you. I enjoyed uh, Saw 2 and 3 to a, to a certain extent. Um, but they definitely... Especially in Saw 3, it delved into torture porn. Um, well, Saw 2 Saw two was the one where they had like the guy reaching in like glass for the syringe yeah. and crawling into the weird oven contraption. I'm pretty sure a case could be made for torture <laughs> porn at that I, point. That, okay, I'm not going to fight you too okay, much on that yeah. one. I'll, I'll concede that. But I, I, I didn't hate those movies as much as I think... A lot of people did. I don't think that they're very valuable to cinema. Uh, but Saw is. I yeah. will definitely agree with you. Saw is... I mean, James Wan is a good director. I He he can tell a story. Yes. Let's put it that way. He, he, he may not, you know, have the lens flares of a J.J. Abrams or the swooping shots of... Uh, a J.J. Of a J.J. Abrams. The, the weird, tiny... Yeah. Tiny focus, high-velocity shot... Yeah, whatever that weird thing he does. <laughs> but God. Um, he definitely is a talented director, and he knows how to frame shots, and he creates a sense of dread in his horror films. I I have yet to not like a James Wan film. Put it that way. So, um, good good choice. Yeah, if you've never seen Saw, you're really missing out. Don't judge it by the myriad of sequels. It is yeah. a it is a film of value so. and a great like you were, a, a great mystery in it too like yeah. the thing the whole time you're it's a smart film because you're thinking uh, who do i trust sure. as a, as a as a viewer you're trying to decide who you should trust which character is telling the truth mm-hmm. uh, you know how they really got into the situation and exactly um, so number 3 on my list um, is fright night um the 1985, the original, not the remake. The remake is fine with Colin Farrell. Um, it lacks uh, the charm and humor, I would say, of the original. So, um, what I first of all, let me say what I love about Fright Night, um, the original Fright Night, is the cast. Uh, so, Chris Sarandon um, plays... Well, I guess I should talk about the synopsis. The synopsis is, a teenage boy suspects that a vampire has moved in next door. And um, the vampire... Uh, begins to seduce his mother and he doesn't like that so obviously he reaches out to a Vincent Price like character named Peter Vincent uh, who uh, hosts a midnight horror show and um, he tries to convince uh, Peter to help him dispose of the vampire that lives next door to him obviously Peter thinks he's crazy um, but the cast is great. So Chris Sarandon plays the neighbor, Jerry Dandridge, um, William Ragsdale. It plays Charlie Brewster, who is the main character. Um, just a lovable goofball of a character. And this is kind of the next three picks for me, including this one. So this one and the two following are going to borderline on horror comedy, um, kind of like evil dead. This is, I think we were talking, it's hard to find a good horror film that doesn't have a level of comedy in it. 
Um, it's very few and far between. Harder than we'd like, especially now that we took, you know, like the big the big five films we already yeah, talked about off the list. Exactly. But even if you would have, you know, even if you think of um, like, you know, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Cougar is funny and he's known for his one-liners. That Yeah. Uh, I was thinking more. All right. So if we were going to build a list, it'd be like Halloween. The Shining, The Exorcist, yeah. Poltergeist. There's right. four. Psycho probably would be Psycho, in there. Psycho, yeah. You could, you could do it. It's it's just... there. And those aren't very funny. It's, it's, yeah. It's just sad how few straight horror, terrifying horror films... I agree. There, that are good. That yeah. there are out there. Yeah. Well, you know, and just not to toot my own horn, but I have two that you should watch on my list. Yeah. The I mean, probably more than that, actually. And Yeah, uh, definitely. But um, Fright Night, to me... What what makes it so great is its humor, and it is fun, and it is genuinely scary. Uh, there are some parts that I remember watching as a child and thinking, I covering my eyes. And when I went back and watched this um, this weekend um, for this podcast to refresh my memory, I remember being like, "Holy!" I, I just was like, "Holy crap!" I remember being scared of this, and I still am scared. Like, just um, there are, there's a scene where they go to the basement and where he finds out that. Uh, the neighbor really I'm not spoiling anything here the neighbor's a vampire there wouldn't be a movie if he wasn't yeah. a vampire um, it would be a lot more sick and twisted and there probably wouldn't be any humor elements <laughs> in the exactly. end exactly yeah um, but just being really scared as he's going down the steps and you're you're just like I, I'm holding my breath and actually the remake did capture us uh, that feeling um, you, you've seen the I've never seen the in, remake, in no. remake I stayed away from the re- remake but, but you've seen the original? No, I'm. I, it's one of those films that has been on my list for forever, uh, you know. But I've never gotten around to watching it. The remake has a similar scene in it too, where they sneak into the neighbor's house, and the tension and the fright and the fright is there. Um, but yeah, Fright Night. It was a movie that my dad introduced to me at a young age. Uh, I, mean, I mean, this movie came out in 1985, so I was four at the time. I wasn't <laughs> watching it when I was four, but I definitely by nine I had seen this movie, and I had watched it with my my dad and. Um, it's it's an interesting film. It's fun. It's different. Um, there's definitely um, some scary, scary elements in it. But again, it's so funny. It's got some hilarious one-liners. Um, a great cast. Um, Amanda Bierce plays Amy Peterson. Um, she's known for Married with Children uh, as the neighbor. Can't remember her name in Married with Children. Um, but... Just a good cast, a funny cast. Uh, Roddy McDowell plays Peter Vincent. Um, exactly. So, okay. horror legend Roddy McDowell. Uh-huh. Um, I would recommend it. And, you know, it has two of, I would say, two of the greatest uh, makeup transformation scenes in any film you'll ever see. Um, with Chris Serena becoming a vampire and then a, another character, which I'm not going to spoil, getting turned into something otherworldly um so fright night check it out okay well uh next on my list i'm gonna move to a film that not not the best film ever um but something that i really enjoyed and appreciated and thought fell under a lot of people's radar uh so the the movie i'm talking about is 1408 um, it has John Cusack uh, in I the leading role. I love John role. Cusack, by the way. Yeah, I almost I almost had identity on this list, but I kind of disqualified it because it's just it's got so many more pure thriller elements. Yeah. it is a better film than than 1408 by not even really comparable. 
But uh, yeah, 1408 and also Samuel L. Jackson. It is the story of a skeptic atheist horror writer, um, a.k.a. Stephen King, because it's adapted from a Stephen King story. And God knows he can't write something without inserting himself (laughs) in a very literal way into his own work. Um, It's a story of Stephen King, uh, who uh, writes books about haunted places. You know, you've all seen these books, you know, the 10 most haunted places hotels of over the Rhine Cincinnati (laughs) that something along those lines um but is kind of struggling after the death of his daughter uh and gets a mysterious invitation to check out a haunted room in a famous hotel um and the management uh especially the head of the hotel or proprietor um is not the one who sent him the invitation and does a very convincing job of trying to keep him away. Uh, uh, so it's the story of him in this room, and it does appear to be haunted. Otherwise, there's it would be no movie. <laughs> but again, um, what it comes down to is if this were a weaker movie, it would not work um, because you have to have an hour and a half of convincing horror and psychological scares in the confines of this one hotel room um there there is an interesting twist it's not super well executed you can kind of see it coming but you'll still appreciate it um but i i just i think this movie is a fun very enjoyable um horror film that runs the gamut from kind of heartfelt and endearing to genuinely creepy at uh at some points um it feels very modern um there isn't an overuse of cg but there's some cg um but the really uh (laughs) you know after watching this i knew i knew i liked the film because every time i hear the song it's only just begun I immediately think about this movie and it creeps me out. <laughs> yeah, don't you um, love that? That's yeah. awesome. That's an awesome feeling, actually. So you know that based on that alone, there there's something going on here. But especially if you like John Cusack, you know he's 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 your darling. You want to go see this movie? Um, it's it's pretty much just him too, right? I mean, he carries the weight. Of, I mean, yeah. There's there is a there's a small role for his estranged wife um, and. Samuel L. Jackson is the hotel operator, manager, and really it's a th- it's a three character film. Mm-hmm. So very simple, which apparently is what I like, and uh, it'll get more complicated in my, in my next couple of films. But uh, yeah, um, check out fourteen oh eight if you haven't. I don't know if you've seen it. If you have anything to say on it, but no, yeah, I saw it in the theater, and I remember it scared the bejesus out of me. Uh, I I want to go back and revisit it, um, and I'm glad you brought it up because I it's one of those movies that I kind of forgot about. I went through a phase. Where I mean, I still love John Cusack. He's kind of making lesser films now. He's kind of fell out of stardom, I would say. I mean, Hot Tub Time Machine, he's back on top. <laughs> I, I forgot about that. He was too good for the sequel, remember? Well, um, did you see the sequel? No, I didn't. It was unbelievably bad. Really? Well, yeah. maybe. Smart decision, John Cusack. But uh, in 1408, you really get to see his acting chops because like, I kind of interject a little bit, but... I mean, the film rests solely on his ability to carry it. Uh, I mean, Samuel L. Jackson is a side character and has well, enough time. 
a suitable enough. Mouth. Although I was actually impressed with Samuel L. Um, how kind of uh, affected and I wouldn't say creepy, but yeah, maybe a little creepy in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like the time you get to spend with him on screen too. But yeah, no, I definitely don't want to diminish that. But I just think that Cusack is a good actor, and I don't think that he's been given the roles or he's accepted the roles that could really reflect that. Maybe I don't know. I don't know if he has a huge range, but this part is very is is almost tailor made for him a lot in You're a right. lot of ways. He does he does a, true. he does do a great job here. Um, and again, the film wouldn't be worth watching if he didn't bring something to the table. So agree, but no great choice. I definitely now I'm going to have to go back and revisit, visit it. Um, so my next film could have easily been number one if I hadn't uh, decided to really make a point out of at number one about horror um, and what why I enjoy horror and what makes a good movie. But um, that is uh, Cabin in the Woods. Which you could argue maybe isn't as much of a horror movie as it is a comedy, but I think there are enough horror elements in it, and it really is 100% satire of the genre. Um, have you seen Cabin in the Woods? I, you know, it's, I remember almost seeing it when it came out. I mean, it's got to be, what, like almost 15 years ago at this point? Um, no, I don't think we're talking about the same film then. Um Oh, oh, you're talking about, yes, Joss Whedon. Yes, I did see Cabin in the Woods. Oh, yeah, I went, I don't know how I just lost that completely. It's okay. Yes, I have seen Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> Were you thinking Cabin Fever? I was thinking Cabin Fever, yeah. No, no I, I like Cabin Fever, okay. but did we just talk about Eli Roth? Yeah, that's ago? why. It's. I'm just stuck on Eli Roth. It's yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, no, Cabin in the Woods. Yes. Joss Whedon, Drew Goddard. Yes. Um, to me, it is one of the most brilliant films ever made. And I'm not saying that just as a fanboy of Joss Whedon or Drew Goddard um, or of a fanboy of the genre. I love horror movies. I think that Cabin in the Woods is... It's a type of film that I would love to make. It's a type of film that I think is so smart and so funny and so good that people didn't understand it and it fell by the wayside. Especially people who aren't necessarily in love with the horror genre. The way that it subverts so many... uh, different uh horror tropes the way that um uh, richard jenkins and bradley whitford um as citizen and hallie uh hadley as you know they're controlling these uh the, these kids as they enter the house and in the woods and they're trying to set up this perfect you know horror movie and um you know it plays so heavily on the tropes um that you're like, oh, like if you never saw a horror movie or you saw one horror movie and you stepped into this, it would make you're like, oh, so there's a smart, there's the smart girl, there's she's the virginal girl, right? There's the final girl, mm-hmm. there's the jock, there's the the stoner, uh-huh. and um, it just subverts those those tropes so brilliantly. And I love the line uh, in the film um, by. Uh, Fran Kranz is his name. Yeah, Marty, the, the stoner. Yeah, and yeah. he's like, "Are we all nuts here? What do we? What do you mean split up? That's the worst idea I've ever heard." And basically, the reason that so they shoot these gases into the house to get the reactions from the the, the characters that they want. Chris Hemsworth um, as a leading man before he was Thor. Yeah, um, they want him to be the the dumb jock, mm-hmm. and he's but he's really smart and and. So this gas affects him to make him be a dumb jock. And he's like, 
no, you're way smarter than that. What are you thinking? Why we're not splitting up? Like that kind of uh, attitude. Um, it, basically, he smokes so much weed that those gases don't affect him. Yes, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, there. Um, there's so much to say about this film. I know the ending has been um, debated and hated by people, but to me, I don't know how else you end that film. It it yeah. So I I did enjoy this film. Um, and again, I was one of the people that kind of felt like it. A lot of criticism came that it was, you know, trying to be too clever for its own good. And I, I really didn't feel that way. I enjoyed it all the way until the end. Um, and not even, I'm not even talking about the last act, but just the final scene with the Sigourney Weaver's character um, and the two remaining candidates. Yeah. And the choices that are made. So, you know, there's a lot of criticism for the film trying to be too clever for its own good or trying to be too meta, and I don't think that was the case. I, you know, I really enjoyed the film. Uh, I didn't even have problems with it in the last act. It was only the last, very specifically the last scene that bothered me um, with the head of the this organization played by Sigourney Weaver and the, the final two candidates and how the ending plays out. Um, I, I feel like there was a clear different ending um, that didn't involve kind of the end of the world maybe I don't know if that's spoiling things too much probably is but uh, um, <clears throat> I mean yeah but it's okay yeah I, I just I don't know uh, I just I don't know if there was anything that would have satisfied me but I wasn't quite satisfied um, and it was probably because the movie was so good and so fun up to that point. Um, it is, I and I and I as much as I defend the film and I think it's a, a, a genius uh, piece of art, the ending is is lackluster and Sigourney Weaver's character is definitely shoehorned in. I feel like yeah. And, um, I don't know. And this movie, t- it, first of all, it took a long time for them to actually release it. It was only until the success of Josh Whedon's Marvel plan that they decided to even release this. Um, so I don't know how much influence we, c- we can blame on the studios for even having in this film, but I definitely agree that the ending isn't the best. But to me, the, the rest of the film is just so smart and so fun and... Uh, plays with the genre so um it's let me put it this way it's very reverent to the genre even though it it makes fun of the of 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 horror and the genre and uh dissects it and dumps it on its head it's very reverent and it it appreciates the genre i found myself wanting more like i wish the the first and second acts of the film before you kind of peel back a couple of the layers i wish i could have just stayed there and had more time with the director and the writers and their kind of take and flipping the genre around a little bit because sure. I, re- I really enjoyed that part of the film um, I did too I I, I, um, I would definitely recommend this film though even if you're not a fan of the horror genre or you know you think maybe the other thing another problem is not a lot of people saw this movie because the studios had no idea how to market it yeah uh, it is 
you can't just market it as a straight horror film, and you can't market it as a straight horror uh, or a straight comedy. Yeah. So it's it had it had its problems and uh, with marketing, but and I think that's why a lot of people didn't see it. But do yourself a favor it's next Halloween. You're looking for something different. I say give Cabin in the Woods a try. Well, unless you're looking for a just a pure horror film to kind of feel up. Feel up a first date or something. Yeah, like that's that. that's true. Because this is uh, this is an intelligent movie, we, you know. But yeah, if if you're looking for something to calm down after watching Eli Roth torture porn, if you're yeah, compilation if, volume, if, if you're six, trying to come down yeah. after watching Cabin Fever, there you go. Watch Cabin in the Woods. There you go. That is beautiful. That'd be a beautiful transition right there. All right. Well, so I ended up with a uh, about. Six films on my list. Um, so the next one I'm going to talk about is actually another Sam Raimi film, believe it or not, which I think really uh, was his second big success in the genre, uh, and that is Drag Me to Hell. Um, this so this is the another film, and I I just I feel like Sam Raimi can't make a film without injecting a little bit of his own humor into mm-hmm. it. So, Drag Me to Hell is really equal parts, almost, horror and horror comedy. Um, there are some genuinely creepy, creepy parts of the film, and you will also be laughing out loud yeah, during exactly. other parts of the film. And I, I can't think of another movie that accomplishes both of these things so well at the same time. Um, I mean, it is, it is a... <laughs> kind of a hilarious um, spin on the genre while being a great example of the genre at the same time. Um, so the movie centers around a a young aspiring bank manager who denies a woman an extension on her uh, mortgage payments and forecloses on the house. And in classic... <laughs> Uh, probably racist turn. Um, the woman is a gypsy and <laughs> curses her. And the rest of the film uh, is her figuring out if this curse is real. And then when she kind of accepts that it's real, trying to figure out how to lift the curse. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I don't really, I don't really know what to say about the film other than it's hilarious and scary. Um, and just brilliant. I, I really think this is probably my favorite Sam Raimi film. I like this better than Evil Dead. Um, it. I don't think it is uh, is going to be remembered for its lasting contributions to horror the way Evil Dead was. But um, I think all around this is just a a fantastic film. Um, the performances are great. Uh, the effects are great. Um, some of the sequences are like I don't know if you've ever seen Sam Raimi films he has a fetish for having characters vomit into another character's mouth which happens twice in this film right yeah well one of the times yeah yeah you could say twice in this film it happens in Evil Dead but uh (laughs) this if you want to be if you want to have yeah genuinely creepy hilarious evening uh, watching a movie I think this is the best choice you can make well what I like about it is it encompasses so many different uh, 
parts of the genre. So it is there is gross out, you know, uh, horror. There is psychological horror. Uh-huh. There are jump scares. There are some great jump scares. Yeah. There is an overall sense of dread uh-huh. in the film. Um, and the I so I before we even talked about doing this podcast, I had been watching horror movies all month, just kind of gearing up for Halloween. I love horror movies in this time of year and I watched Drag Me to Hell again and I just it strikes me every time I see it how it it really is a horror movie for everyone because it has all those elements and it has a twist it has um it has Justin Long yeah yeah well I At, mean ladies come on exactly uh it is fun and it is scary and it is satisfying and it is unsatisfying um I, I agree with you i definitely think this is by far his best overall film with everything being considered you know i mean even including spider-man 2 which is a great superhero film you, you meant to say spider-man 3 right oh uh, yeah yes but that's a that <laughs> well spider-man 3 is another horror film right, yeah right actually uh-huh. yes um no but i i love drag me to hell and i i think that um, it is very underappreciated, and I, I just think that his sensibility um, doesn't isn't appreciated by uh, later generational horror fans. Yeah, I, I just I feel like he hasn't done enough in the genre. I agree, hundred percent. How how good he is at it, it's it's kind of a shame. I mean um, the 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 fight scene, I guess, in the car. Oh God, is yeah. one, it is one of the most brilliant. Um, intense scenes you're gonna see in the in the genre. I mean, uh, you're and it just ends. So, I, I I could go on forever about this, but it ends so simply and perfectly and perfectly. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, it, I definitely recommend Drag Me to Hell. If you haven't seen it, you're and you are a horror fan, you're missing out on a spectacular film. Yeah, this this movie will always hold a special place in my heart, um, in the genre. So, um, so, um. My number one film, um, and I want to preface this by saying um, I actually believe that as far as a film, this is superior to the original, um, but it's not as memorable as the original, and it's not as fun to me. And that's Scream 2. So Scream 1 was on my list, and then I was like, you know, everybody's seen Scream 1, but a lot of people forget about Scream 2. And um, the reason I love Scream 2 so much is because it takes the premise of the first one, of the slasher flick, and uh, turns it into a commentary on sequels, much like uh, 22 Jump Street did this past, uh, or two years ago. Um, It has fun with the idea of being a sequel, and what to expect in a sequel, and why sequels happen, and what makes a sequel successful over another sequel? Well, you, you might want to take a step back. I, I feel like a lot of people reject Scream out of hand because they don't understand that it is just an overt genre commentary and is, is also sat, it's, it's a, it's satire. It's satire of the slasher genre. And it's done brilliantly. Um, and I, I think people who haven't seen Scream don't understand what the movie is. But it is not a slasher film. Um, 
so with that being said, Scream 2 is also not a slasher film. <laughs> no. It is, it is satire, and it is a clever satire. So, I'll, yeah, I'll let you continue. Uh, no, so, I mean, yeah, and Colin's exactly right. Um, he, you know, some of the funny things that... Uh, <laughs> and I just, I, I laugh every time I see Ghostface getting beat up, getting <laughs> tripped, getting kicked in, 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 in the face. And you're just, it's... You know, because when you think of Michael Myers or Jason or, you know, you, you think of this <laughs> this unstoppable yeah, force. that relentless killing machine. That you're yeah. just, you know, you hit it with a two by four and it keeps coming. And, you know, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite scenes uh, from the first scream, I know we're, I'm supposed to be talking about yeah, scream too. But, it's okay, yeah. But the first scream is when Rose McGowan is in the garage and she just starts chucking beer bottles, at, you know, and it's just, it's, it's. It's funny because, you know, if that was Michael Myers, they would just keep coming. But Ghostface is backing up because he's getting hit with bottles and he's a real human. Um, uh, so, yeah, I just, you know, there was a line in uh, Scream 2 where, you know, Randy is on the phone and he's talking. Um, and they're like, what's your favorite horror movie? And he's like, Showgirls, absolutely horrendous. Um, or absolutely terrifying is what yeah. he says. Um but then you know, there's comment. Even he he has the best commentary of the of the film, and and he says, you know, part two, it's got to be bloodier, gorier. You know, the body count has to be higher, and it is. The they, I think, more than double the body count. Yeah, I, I would guess so. Um, so the first film, there's only I think five murders, mm-hmm. um, and there's ten or thirteen in this film. Um, just. Wes Craven, um, rest in peace, is uh, a master like John Carpenter. Yeah. It's not a secret that those two are two of the best filmmakers in general of all time. Um, so if you've seen Scream and you think that, oh, Scream 2 is just another sequel, you're wrong. It's not. It's a great film. It doesn't necessarily improve on the first, improve on the first one, but it is... Just equally as good. Sure, it's. Uh, I think it, you could say it sets out to do the same things that the first one did, with the understanding that it is a sequel and that new kind of set of rules that it's going to both follow and mock. Um, and it it does it well. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, so I had a couple more films on here. Um, I'm just going to go with one more, considering uh, where our time is at. Um, believe it or not, I managed to put uh, The Lost Highway as my favorite horror film of all time. And I guess I could see why that might be a stretch for a lot of you. Um, or really, I mean, probably most of you have never seen The Lost Highway. Uh, it's, it's one of the films that kind of came after David Lynch's big surge of popularity. Um, not one of his more popular films. We talked about it in the first podcast. Um, I think the first act of The Lost Highway, which is about the first 40 minutes of the film, um, if you took that and cut it from the rest of the film and sold it as a short movie, um, it would be one of the scariest short films ever made. Um, it's not gory. It's just, well, there is some gore in the last scene. Uh, of that act, but uh, it is psychologically terrifying and creepy. Um, and the rest of the film, um, while it's not necessarily 
pure horror um, deals with a lot of the things that make horror films so good, um, which are identity and um, kind of feeling of being trapped or stuck uh, in these these cycles. Um, so I remember uh, the first time I watched this film, I had to get up and take a break because I was so creeped out uh, after the beginning <laughs> of the film. <laughs> um, and it doesn't, the, there are a lot of different kind of things uh, going on in the film. Um, there are bits and pieces from a lot of different genres. Um, and the pacing and the, the, the characters and the story... Um, are not consistent, but the the beginning of the film is so creepy that I think this is I would count it as maybe my favorite horror movie or favorite scary movie of all time. Um, the I mean, you, you'll finish the film and it will leave you feeling unsettled and unsure and uh, thinking about things, which I I think is the best uh, that really. Any, any horror movie could hope to do. Um, plus, I, as a bonus point, um, Robert Blake <laughs> plays a, an incredibly creepy character in this film. Uh, if you don't know, Robert Blake uh, was uh, convicted of murdering his wife, and I think he was acquitted, but uh, maybe... I don't know if he lost like a civil case to the woman's family, but... It's it's pretty clear that although we couldn't convict him, he he probably murdered his wife. Right. And this is like the last film he did before nobody would hire him because he murdered his wife. Right. Uh, so with that in mind, if you've never seen it before, um, the mystery man in the film is a real life murderer. So go back and rewatch it with that in mind, and it'll just get even creepier from right. there. And it, that you're right, it does. The thing about the Lost Highway is. I'm trying not to spoil anything here, uh, but when when Bill Pullman changes is the way I'm going to phrase it. Yeah, and that might be a little bit of a spoiler, but sure. But you, it, it doesn't matter, yeah. Bec- he becomes something different, and I, I think that's being... I'm being vague. Yes. Um the horror the horror element is lost a little bit there even though the psychological thriller part kicks in i feel like but i think you're definitely and i never really thought about it that way until you framed it and and as a horror element but you're right i mean uh everything about the first 40 minutes of the film like you said is scary it's creepy and it's frightening um yeah I, i i really i feel like i would I could make a case that the first 40 minutes is a pure horror film. Um, or at the very least, a pure psychological thriller that culminates in something from a horror film. And it is definitely David Lynch through and through. I feel like this is David Lynch making a horror film, honestly, now that I think about it. This is how he would make a horror film. Yeah. Um, even though I've heard people talk, say that Mulholland Drive is a horror film. Um I saw that on a few lists when I was looking in it. I, I never thought about it. And to me, Lost Highway is way more scary than anything else he's done when you put it that in the way that you have. The way that you 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 um, you described it, it, it is truly terrifying. 
And I think, I mean, who knows what David Lynch is thinking when he makes a film because he's really out there. But uh, I can definitely see a case for the Pullman character um, being a commentary on him reaching stardom. I, I could I could see that. Well, so within and spoiler alert here. If you don't want to, if you don't want to have anything spoiled for the film, maybe stop. Or if you don't want to have somebody interpret the film for you, maybe stop listening for a minute or two minutes. Um, I think a case could be made that the first act of the film is really the events of the film, um, mm. and the rest of the film is a fugue state in which the character is mentally dissociating himself from the horrible thing he's just done but in the end he can't escape from himself even in this alternate reality and alternate life he's created in his head and in the end it all comes crashing down slowly at first but the walls all come down and he's back yeah i back where he started and literally the end of the film is the beginning of the film yeah and it's it's a loop the film functions in a loop um so uh, yeah, just a genuinely creepy and unsettling um, film. Um, may, it, it's one of those, maybe, maybe I, I, I'm pretty sure I was more creeped out after finishing this film than I have been watching anything else ever. Um, and very curious and very inquisitive, but very creeped out. So, Just out of curiosity, why did you leave off... Uh... People aren't kind of know what we're talking about, so we're gonna have to explain it. But murder party. Well, I I don't know. I was thinking maybe that was a, a capstone. Um, so the the last film that was on my list uh, is this little gem of a film called Murder Party. Um, you introduced this to me. Yes, and the the director, um, whose name I'm not. Jeremy Solonier. Yes, Solonier. 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 Um, who, by the way. Uh, is brilliant his film Blue Ruin um, was on my top 10 of last year and he's got an upcoming film Green Room which looks really promising yes um, so Murder Party is it's not really a horror movie it's just a kind of a horror comedy or a send up of the horror genre um, the, the premise of the film is a bunch of super pretentious art students um, have lured an unsuspecting idiot to an abandoned warehouse um, in an attempt to murder him in the most creative way and win basically an art grant. (laughs) Um, And it's just as ridiculous as it sounds. Uh, And they're all really inept and none of them are necessarily good artists. They're all just (laughs) pretentious pricks. Uh, it is hilarious. It is an absolutely hilarious film. It is. It's so funny. Um, but there are some really good horror elements going forward, too. The makeup um, is oh, really yeah. fun. Some of the effects are really fun. Um, I think that the, the last uh, 20 minutes is definitely... Uh, the, the horror element is upped a notch. Yeah, it, 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 it sort of becomes, pseudo, I don't know, pseudo-horror. There, there are some real horror elements. It's not just parody at the end, the end of the film. Um, 
Once once you learn that everybody dies, <laughs> it's it is so. Uh, and and the, the okay, the thing that blew my mind, and I'm the reason that like I'm glad that we're talking about it is, you know, you showed me this film and it's like this little small film I never heard of. Yeah, never heard of anybody in it. I never heard the director, and then I magically stumble upon Blue Ruin, and it is the total opposite film. Of murder party, there is, there you could see how they're they come from the same mind. Mm-hmm. Um, both of our heroes are inept, uh, a little bumbling. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but the 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 sensibility of of Jeremy Solionaire is I, to me. I think he is going to be around for a long time he's very cohen-esque in his ability yeah the, so the the jump from if you haven't seen these films or if you've only seen one of them the jump from murder party to blue ruin is astounding um as far as the end product and that kind of the the technical the technical changes uh in directing um but yeah the, i mean this guy has potential blue ruin was just a uh a monumental film for me last year. Um, one of the films I walked away from and just was kind of done for the night. Um, yeah. It's, it's j- just a great film. Um, very simple and understated and impactful. But uh, if you like that, go watch Murder Party, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know what the relationship is here. But Isn't that, 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 but that's the weird part to me is that, yeah. the, that he made those two films. I, I think... Uh, it makes Murder Party better for me. Like, I, I, it makes me want to watch that film again. I don't think anything could make Murder Party better for me. We <laughs> we love that film so much. We watched it like every Halloween for like three years. That is, and then crazy. we would just wander around calling people dildos for the next month or so. <laughs> it really is a funny film. Uh, if you take away anything from this podcast, it's you should find Murder Party and you should watch it. Good luck trying to find it, but if you do, watch it. Or because of all ten of the listeners probably know Brian or Colin in person, <laughs> right. just ask one of us and there we will you go. point you to a legally sourced copy of the movie, wink, wink. Or he'll let you borrow his. Yes. There you go. <laughs> this is what we mean by that. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I think that's going to do it. Do you have anything else to say? Any? No, I've, I've uh, talked long enough. Yeah, this is a long episode, I think, for anybody who stuck around this long to hear this end. <laughs> Hello. Uh, but uh, so we know what we're going to be reviewing next week. Uh, I think we're both excited about Spectre, right? I am cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I, no, I'm excited. Well, yeah, we'll go with that. Sure. Uh, yeah. So you know, next week we'll be uh, we'll be reviewing Spectre, and then um, after that we'll let you know. So bye. Bye. Your sin.